come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. We're a committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George. Try and straight line it, get to the line, and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton. Welcome, welcome to Unqualified, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as always, I've got my co-pilot, G. I'm Graham. Uh, G, I, I got to be honest with you. I went into Sunday with a comfortable pillow and a, and a fluffy blanket. I was down at the beach on vacation. I was expecting to nap through about half of this race. And I find myself eyeballs glued to the TV for four straight hours, pretty much uninterrupted. So I'm not sure we got what we were expecting, but what we were expecting was maybe pretty awful so yeah how did you take it uh yeah what'd you think yeah i mean despite the monaco despite the fia's uh best efforts to to squander the greatest uh opportunity (laughs) monaco had to redeem its its former glory um yeah the race was uh impressively interesting uh ferrari put on quite the strategy disaster class and red bull was there to uh (laughs) you know they started with leclerc and and signs on one two um, only to finish 3-4. So Red Bull capitalized. Perez took his first win of the season after out-qualifying Max. Uh, and even before the, the race started, the, the paid drivers once again showed their true colors. So it was it had a little bit of everything. <laughs> you, you have covered all my highlights, but I want to figure out if we could put disaster class on a T-shirt. <laughs> with, a nice, with a nice yellow pony logo. I mean, after this oh. week, they, they absolutely deserve it i mean let's just dive in and and start right there so when it comes to when it comes to ferrari this this weekend i mean you had the great position one two leclerc never having even finished a race in monaco professionally had a chance to now once again take home the win where where did it all go wrong for ferrari this week well well first off as you kind of already alluded i'd like to congratulate Charles Leclerc very genuinely mm. for finishing his first race at Monaco. I mean, I look, I, hey, let's not overlook that. Big, yeah, I, round of applause, Charles. I think that, you know, it's a massive accomplishment. We shouldn't take it lightly. He was disappointed after the race, but baby steps, man. I finished your race. Uh, but no, look, dude, at the end of the day, like, it, consistency is what it takes to win drivers' championships. And consistency not only has to come from the driver, but it's got to come from the team performance. And that is m- no more true. Uh, really anywhere than it is with the strategy guys. And you could, I mean, you listen to Leclerc's team radio and the the pit wall just literally sounds like they're in the process of audibly shitting their pants through (laughs) the radio. Like they, it's like one side of the garage wasn't talking to the other. And when Leclerc's engineer figured out that Carlos was staying out, they just like, or coming in, they had this knee jerk reaction on a strategy that wasn't correct. And then they tried, they called him in, like 100 feet before the pit lane entry and then tried to reverse it after he had turned in. I mean, it was a disaster, man. So to me, it's like you, you can have championship drivers and you can have a championship car, but if you don't have a championship team on the pit wall, you can still not win it. Uh, and that is very clearly what happened to me. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I mean, at, at first glance, it's it, it's pretty shocking how like ill-organized they, they actually seem. Anytime you have your pit crew like 
reversing their decision to have you box immediately after telling you to is like a terrible sign. But looking back at it, it it's interesting. I don't know if they actually had much of a choice um, because the way the the way the race lined up, given the the rapidly changing conditions, like typically in that race, you would have been several more laps down the road before you would have potentially pitted, giving your drivers more time to like open up the necessary gap on the cars behind. And I think, I think Leclerc was in a position where if he would have pitted any earlier than he did, he would have come out behind Norris and then been stuck in traffic behind Norris rather than having clear air. And so they were a bit, and then on top of that signs had said he wanted to wait for slicks. And so maybe that's on Ferrari for not like overriding that decision and getting him in there sooner. But I think Ferrari was admittedly a bit in a catch 22 between either wait and see how it plays out or pit Leclerc early and have him end up stuck behind Norris. So I'm not sure if they had a good win out of that either way. So let's, I really want to dive into this. So let's recap real quickly, the pit window, just kind of chronologically as it occurred. Yeah, we can give a quick rundown. Um, so it's, it's important to know, and, and we'll get into this more in a, a couple minutes, but uh, lap one, we had Lance Stroll and Nicholas Latifi pitting. So uh, stay tuned for, for that. But um, yeah. Um, but so a lot of the midfield or, or lower half of the grid pitted. Gasly was first after Stroll and Latifi to pit. He had good pace. He was passing cars on track, namely Daniel Ricciardo. A um, couple other drivers um, pitted. Stroll and Latifi pitted again to go to intermediates because why the hell not? You got nothing to lose. Um, followed by Schumacher and Vettel and Sonoda and Hamilton as well. So they all had had pitted. Perez was really the first in the sort of the top five to six drivers to pit. And he pitted on lap 16, followed by Norris um, on lap 17. Now that was really critical because Leclerc did not pit immediately after Perez on his lap 17 because they thought he would come out behind Lando Norris and lose even more time that way. So they... at that point, they were either betting that he could stay out and not have to take enters or that the lap time differential between the enter and the wet wouldn't be as substantial as it ended up being. Yeah, or, or I mean, they, or they compromise and say, like, yeah, no matter what, we're going to have to pit this next time and, like, stop the bleeding. But, so I it's mean, damned if you do, damned if you I, don't, to your original point. I think, I think they, were, they didn't have a chance either way. Um, because of just the positioning with where Norris was on the track and how early into the race they were pitting. And so as soon as he cleared, though, I mean, I guess, yeah, that the alternative at that point is I I think they knew the lap time differential was too significant. And so they were trying to hope that, yeah, they could probably wait it out and go to go to slicks in, you know, the 20 second pit window and hope they didn't lose lose that 20 seconds on however many laps it took for them to get to to slicks. Um, so Perez pitted, then Leclerc pitted followed by Verstappen immediately after. So that's when you had him come out. Signs was still out on full wets. And then you had Perez, Leclerc and Verstappen all on intermediates, but then it had dried out and it was only what lap 21 and 22 that Ferrari and Red Bull pitted. And on top of that, like in terms of timing and coming out behind other cars, both Ferrari drivers came out behind both 
Williams drivers. Uh, and so there was a bunch of controversy about how much they got trapped and impeded. Admittedly, Latifi did about as good as you could do. I mean, it was about half a lap. You could argue he could have moved out of the way sooner, but it was an awfully technical part of the track. He got out right at the tunnel, whereas Albon stayed in front of Leclerc for an entire lap. For forever. For yeah. forever. And there were, I would think, several occasions he could have stopped. That kind of nullifies their original concern about coming out behind Norris. To me, in a in a track like Monaco, you can't try and overly engineer who you come out behind at, at the end of a pit window. There's just too many variables that impact that one way or the other. It's really hard to predict unless it's later in the race and the intervals between the cars are a lot bigger. At that stage of the race, they weren't. No. Well, and this is the kind of the interesting dynamic that you often see with starting on pole and why many times – I enjoy or prefer to have Max start on second one because he's had a sort of streak the last couple seasons, some bad starts off the line, but there's actually an inherent advantage in being able to sort of dictate strategy a little bit if you're in a sort of a strong number two position. And so in this case, fire the first bullet, you could fire the first bullet. They probably Red Bull probably got a little bit luckier in terms of where the gap was because Perez was able to come out after his pit in clean air and just punch it. And so they were able to be a little bit more aggressive where Ferrari, you're not going to give up track position out of the gate. You're going to, you know, it's very unlikely that you'd go for the, you know, the overcut there. Uh, I'm sorry, I guess it would would be nothing. It's no cut. There's no undercut or overcut. Like you wouldn't do that just to maintain, you wouldn't give up positions just to maintain track position really. So they were kind of, they were kind of in a tough position as much shit as people want to give them. They didn't have a lot of great options other than do you potentially override signs and force that issue. But I kind of like their decision to let the driver do what he wanted to do. My question to you is, was there any consideration for, I guess, the sensitivity of the Ferrari car and the drivers like in the conditions and like maybe a reluctance to go to, to intermediates or go to slicks even faster? I mean, Leclerc with a spin out on a chicane, signs with like a very loose back end at times. Uh, you think that factored in at all? I don't know. In the wet, it's kind of like hard to accuse your team of experiencing in any particularly differentiated way than another team. I mean, like you said earlier, the both Canadian drivers crashed on the formation lap. And so it's like, I don't know if it is fair to isolate yourself as a team and say that you're experiencing that more than others when there's pools of water on the ground. I mean, in the signs one in particular, which, by the way, hats off for the save. The onboard of that was nuts. How many different corrections he applied to keep that thing from going into the wall? Like it was, uh, I saw a similar highlight of Colton Herta at a race like two weekends ago in the wet where he like Tokyo drifted through a turn and I mean, just like locked the steering wheel in the other direction and saved it. I mean, it was like miraculous. Also, is there anything sexier you can do as a race car driver than literally like drift the back end and then like reverse lock the, the front wheels and save it? That's like some Steve McQueen shit. I mean, other than winning. Anyway. Yeah, other than winning, well, sure, that's, maybe. Also, that's does that, I'm looking for silver line. Does that count as your one plug for Colton Herta today? Or should we expect more? Uh, later in the there's going to be more. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's going to be All more. Right, I, just, I just wanted to prepare myself. Let's, let's, let's look past the fact that he's not on the top 10 finishers of the Indy 500, but that's you know, neither here nor there. Exactly. So, all right. So Ferrari. Daddy, Daddy Brown, Daddy Zach Brown is still proud of you. Um, that's all he needs to know. Also, I, the last point I'll make about Ferrari is the double stack pit is like one of the coolest things in the sport. 
But they blew that too because they didn't even have the timing to do it and not ruin Leclerc's race. So, I mean, look, you could chalk it up to like bad timing, situational, whatever, but there was still errors along the way that, that can be attributed to them. Can, can, I ask, can I ask a question about signs before we move off of this? The general consensus in the media was hats off to the driver for taking it under his own advisement and doing what he thought was best because it turned out better for his race. But did he ultimately screw the team in doing that? Because clearly they're trying to constantly solve strategy for both drivers and, and, and time the relative pitting of each to, to another. And him making himself less predictable probably made it tougher for them to advise Leclerc in an appropriate manner. So should he actually be congratulated for what he did? I mean, it was better for him, but was it better for the team? That's the trade-off that you you have to make when you have a team of like two close drivers versus when you have that sort of decided number two, right? Admittedly, yeah, it's it's probably a good call. They They allowed both driver the discretion to sort of choose their race when, in fact forcing signs to come in, get the data. He probably would have had a window that was a bit closer to Perez's open window and been able to run from there. So yeah, probably would have served the team better overall. And that's why you see teams like Mercedes with Hamilton as a clear number one, be able to just dictate an optimal strategy for Hamilton every single race and the success that that brought. And so Given yeah. where Signs is at this year, I'm not sure why they didn't play that with a bit of a heavier hand. And I guess that's my question of, did they just let, was there a certain reluctance to like go against what the, the driver's feel was because of some sensitivity nah. about conditions or was it just a pure strategy call? So I think they just panicked. Honestly, I think they just panicked. I think they just panicked and deferred to the driver and didn't have time to adjust. Which, yeah. Which even more so, I would give all that much more credit to Perez for this race because Max yeah. was asked how he thought conditions were, and he said it was pretty difficult on wet tires still. And if I'm not mistaken, Perez was the one who radioed in and asked, so are we going to inters? Thus being the first driver at the front of the grid to put on inters, which ultimately won him the race. So... You know, it's it's yep. a double-edged sword. One time it can win you the race. One time it can lose you the race. Do you fault signs for that? You know, who knows? But uh, credit to him for trying to dictate his race and not fall exclusively into that number two rating while also picking himself up a podium, finishing the race, bringing the car home. So, I mean, all in a, a, a relatively decent weekend for him, albeit at the expense of um, the Monegasque Leclerc. Look at you leading off with your disaster class soundbite and then showing some sympathy for Ferrari. I know. I mean, it's actually very, no, it's a very insightful point you make, and I haven't heard it made in any of the other commentary I've listened to. I actually, I, I'll buy it. Look, as much as I'll I would it. love to just dunk on bad strategy, it's sometimes it's easy it, to play Monday morning quarterback on that stuff, man. Sometimes it sucks to start in first. Uh, you know, as as counter as that seems, you're you're kind of at at the behest of of the drivers behind you, which which is never fun. So, but what, um, so to that point, though, signs, questionable call. Did it hurt the team? Did it hurt Leclerc? But Perez made a call, went to enters, won the race. Yeah. A lot of controversy last week around, you know, multiple instances of Max being granted team orders at the expense of Perez. 
what how did this weekend sort of reshape that dynamic did this put some of those questions about team orders for Perez going forward to rest yes i think it put him to rest but i all think i also think it proved that last week's were to the degree you left barcelona with like a really strong conviction that red bull had totally deprioritized perez and would do so universally in all cases i think it was totally unfounded because the evidence was the total contrary in this race. They obviously you're right. They read off of his intuition from the car about how he was reading the track, but they knew he had track position, put race pace aside. He had track position. So they prioritized him in the strategy. They gave him a faster tire and clean air. Yeah. And I mean, the, even the discourse between the drivers and from Horner after the race, they seem to have a stance where even if privately Max and his engineers and Christian Horner believe that Max is going to have better race pace on average. I think they genuinely believe that they want to create as much of an equitable battle between those drivers from a strategy standpoint. Um, and from a, just like if they're both in the championship battle, letting them race head to head when it's appropriate. Like I think that they all are kind of on the same page about that. And I could be sensationalizing because I'm a fan of Red Bull and I'm obviously very happy with the fact that they've won this race, but like, and obviously, if they come together in Baku, like Ricardo and Verstappen did years ago, everything will change on a dime. But um, I, I, I genuinely think that that they, I don't think they see them as equals. I think they all still believe Max is faster, and I still very much believe that. But I think they're going to give them every. I think they're going to do everything they can to give them equal. Yeah, and I hope you're right. Look, it, it was a great showing, very positive all around, like the perfect response after last week to show that sort of objectivity. And uh, as we talked about, right, like who's got the pace, who's in front, make your decision based on that. I'm not ready to to claim that they're not going to unfairly put put race orders on Perez just exactly because of, of what you claimed. I, I mean, I think Helmet Marco probably loves Max more than his own grandchildren, right? Like almost <laughs> undoubtedly. Um, and so, yeah, I think Perez has like still an uphill battle to fight, but talk about like throwing down the gauntlet and like making a claim to your position, not only on the team, but also in the world drivers championship, like just couldn't be happier for him. And I think what I love the most is he seems to like genuinely carry the whole weight of a country on his shoulders and like em- That's cool. embraces that and like takes honor in that. And I thought my favorite thing with Perez was the race, the, the post-race interview talking about how he's like the, the winningest, you know, Mexican driver and, and Perez immediately turned it back to like the second most famous Mexican driver now deceased and like gave praise to him. And so he, he's just such a great ambassador for Mexico and for the sport. And so love to see him do well Excited for Baku because I think I think it could suit him quite well also. So I'm I'm excited. And look, he's what? Fifteen down in, in the drivers championship now behind behind Max yeah, he's and in like it, man. six behind There's Leclerc no or ten behind Leclerc. So yeah, it's uh he's he's right in there, which is fascinating to see. All the Red Bull haters are doing everything they can to drum up every hypothetical and conspiracy theory about how Perez and Verstappen are going to infight and self-implode the team. Everybody wants to invent that hypothetical because it 
suits their narrative or whatever. And it's like the most satisfying way to imagine Red Bull not winning the constructors because clearly they've got a grip on it. Well, a finger on it, at least, right? In a similar way that Ferrari did, you know, basically a month and a half ago. Well, and and look, that certainly could happen. I like, I, I think as soon as a toxic dynamic can take hold, like after last week, if something happened again in Monaco, like it could have unraveled very, very quickly. I mean, you saw it a couple of year, years ago with Vettel and Leclerc, right? Like stuff started to fray and it got hideous very fast. But I think Red Bull's sort of in this perfect position where, Great. Max won his World Drivers Championship. Red Bull is still like trying to to reclaim that position in the Constructors Championship. And so I think you probably have a pretty unified front. And and look, Perez never even thought he would be fighting for a World Driver exactly. Championship. And so that confluence of things I think puts them in a really good position to be like singularly focused on let's win constructors. And if we do that, one of you will win World Driver Championship. Like and that's not a bad combination. I, I completely agree. I think their individual, so if you take the team and then each driver individually, collectively as a three, group of three, their their individual expectations are as complementary as they could be at this point. And that is not something you could have said about Hamilton Rosberg back in the, because then at that point you had two upstart drivers that both believed they deserved it. You couldn't have said that about Ricardo Verstappen because Ricardo just believed it was his team. He was in the prime of his career. The same is true of Vettel and Leclerc. You could not have said that about any of those groups where you had these crazy blow-ups. There was on-track battles that led to collisions, and and the, the, the dynamic between drivers completely evaporated. I, I just don't see this. I'm not saying it's not possible, but the seeds of having a really bad kind of intra-team culture just don't seem to be there like they've been for other teams in the past. And the one thing we didn't know, that's probably the biggest of them all, is at the end of the day, Perez sort of has the ace in the hole of going back to Max and being like, look, dude, you won your championship. Granted, you raced an incredible season all year, but like that last race, I I carried that. And so if you're ever looking for sort of payback, he's well, Perez is well deserving of it. So, yeah, I think you're, to your point, the, the overall dynamic probably couldn't be any better um, on that team than, than what it is right now. I'll, at risk of being accused of gushing over Max, I will say, and this is maybe a backhanded insult at the same time, I was slightly, more than slightly, I was genuinely surprised by the level of like maturity he seemed to display in handling and interacting with like Checo's success in the race. Yeah. It could have been ugly, right? I mean, I'm sure most people would have thought it would be. In the car, in the post-race driver's press conference, he didn't seem to have to force it. Like he didn't seem like he was forcing a smile. And maybe it's because he was resigned to the fact that Monaco's a gimmicky race and he knows he's faster than Checo on most tracks. And so he's not worried. But it, it at least indicated to me that they're, on the same page and have some genuine chemistry. And like, if shit goes down the track, they're at least going to talk about it. Right. And as, a, as much as I'd like to, to believe in, in all of that, I, I do wonder <laughs> how, how much of it was also sort of helped by the fact that Leclerc still finished behind Verstappen. Like if, if it was like, the, well, if signs was GP said that on team radio, right. He beat the man that mattered. Exactly. Yeah. If, so I think that was a very wise reminder to max of, 
sort of the the broader picture and and putting that into context before he's got to go in front of the camera because if if it was Leclerc in second um, or first it could have it could have been of a different sentiment. You're right. But you're right. I'm being too emotional about you're, this. You're, you're, you're invested here. Yeah. It was it was a very like well aligned day for Red Bull, but I do think it shows an overall positive relationship between the two. I also think like how I would often infer it with Max is he's probably. He's probably more frustrated at himself and at the car, knowing that he didn't have the pace. Like, look, the dude goes out, puts up fast laps that people can't touch on a regular basis. He did that at no point this weekend. So I I think in part of his mind, like, he knew he didn't have it this weekend. And Monaco being what it is, like, okay, great, fine. So he, he probably resigned himself relatively early on to the fact that it wasn't going to be uh, the most the most beneficial weekend for him. So so two more things before we get into the to going through uh, kind of team by team. I want to talk about Monaco. Yeah. And and uh, and all the conversation around it as a, a as a venue and obviously there's still some stuff in the up in the air and then I want to I want to unbox your FIA conspiracy theories because I feel like you've got more of them than, than usual and that's saying a lot because you usually have a lot of them. <laughs> Monaco, it, to me, this was an outlier of its normal self. We know that the negotiations between, I don't even know how to characterize it, the chair of the Monaco Racing Club or whoever the hell it is, and the FAA are kind of in the middle of a posturing negotiation right now. The contract has not been renewed for 2023 as of today. Um, did this change your perception of Monaco as a venue deserving of a, a spot? on the racing calendar. Um, What are your thoughts? I mean, uniqueness aside in terms of the weather and and how all that played out, I I mean, it's certainly helpful to the case, right? I mean, this was admittedly, again, I feel like we've been so spoiled, like between last year and this year of like every race seems so exciting. You talk to more casual fans and they're like, oh, that race was pretty boring. And I'm like, dude, there was countless Monaco races that were like infinitely worse than that one. Like this was, this is the best Monaco ever. And, and so, I mean, I think it certainly helped the case, but to your point, can you bank on it raining like that? Can you bank on some of like the reordering at the top like that every time? No, probably not. And look, you still had situations where cars that were vastly faster than those in front of them couldn't pass, namely Hamilton behind the Alpines. Right. And so it's still frustrating as any fan of any team to watch their driver. I mean, as, however, as a, that was hella impressive by Hamilton. I mean, the dude was like six inches behind Ocon and Alonzo at different points. Like, that is some serious, Alonzo, serious Alonzo courage. Alonzo backing that ass up, dude. dude. He was backing it up. But man, Hamilton was just the fact <laughs> that you could drive so close in those conditions is just yeah. like incredible. But. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's as as much as I hate to say it, and I'm like totally the qualifying purist, and like Saturday was better than Sunday, right? Like, loved how qualifying played out. It, I think the time is I think the time is unfortunately limited, and at best, it becomes part of a a, a regular rotation of of tracks. But I mean, to me, Monaco still stands out as like four of the sort of untouchable historical tracks with, you know, Monza and and Silverstone and, and Spa. So it, I don't know. It's a mixed feeling, especially when you hear about the drivers absolutely love it. 
the business managers hate it. Like it, it is one of the most prestigious races that like you want to win no matter what. But they're they're a bit of the outliers, I think, relative to fans, the corporations, the team managers and principals. There seems to be a lot of posturing and pressuring against Monaco. Maybe it can maybe they stay on if they if they increase their payment to host the race. Maybe it can stay on if they do some modifications of the track in certain areas. Um, and if they stop having their own sponsors, which I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in addition to paying less to host the race, Monaco can actually bring in its own like local sponsors, like Rolex being a premier sponsor of, Mon- of, of F1, but Tag Heuer being the sponsor of like the Monaco GP. And during Schumacher's crash, you got like 30 uninterrupted minutes of Tag Heuer ads. So I'm sure that was a bit of a twisting the knife to to all the execs at, uh, at Rolex. So yeah, look, I, I hope it changes. I hope they can negotiate something because it is a, a very cool and very unique race. But I mean, I still think the solution is one, either what you said, which is you should make it a special like all-star weekend and just have them do cart racing and equal carts and see who the best driver is, or it's, or you make the car smaller and then you can go back to Monaco. No problem. But I think, uh, unfortunately those two are, are probably not in the cards either. But how about you? Do you think it changed? Do you think it changed anything? You seemed a bit pessimistic. Well, no. I, in short, no. I don't think it changed anything. Um, rain races are an outlier. In short order, we'll go back to the normal state. And I don't think there's anything they can do to the cars to make it an actual race. It's not a race. Like, it isn't a race. It's a qualifying competition. It's a qualifying competition, and it's a, it's a battle of team strategies. To the degree that, and and in a race where it rains and you have to pit two or three times, that actually becomes interesting as a competition. But that's still not a race. Like it's not a, it's not a, it's not an actual battle of drivers. So to me, I think your options are either fundamentally change the purpose of the weekend, uh, like the whole you know put everybody in a spec series car that's smaller so they can overtake, or like take some chicanes out of the damn track. And like remove turns 10 and 11 and have the run out of the tunnel just be one continuous straightaway into what's now 12. And maybe somebody will have a chance with, you know, you'll add a second DRS zone, even though the first one's not really even a DRS zone. <laughs> and like maybe give them a chance to go around each other. But like apart from that, I just don't think the track in its current state is an actual racetrack. Um, it's a time trial. And so, which is fine. You just have to fundamentally reorient the expectations of the weekend and change the scoring and the impact on the championship series. Because I don't think it's fair that Monaco has an equal impact in terms of points for constructors and drivers relative to every other track that gets raced on. Because it's a complete outlier. You, complete you outlier. totally had me up until the, the points differential. I mean, I get the emphasis on qualifying, but you're still running the race. You can still crash. You can still be disadvantaged or gained by team strategy. So I'm with you up to that point. I definitely think the. I mean, when you look at the, the map, that's really the only change that I think you could make to the track is remove that chicane. And oftentimes drivers are almost catching the car in front of them by the time you get up to that chicane. So that could improve it. Now I think it makes the next corner um, probably a bit more treacherous than they'd like. But I mean, let's like, there's yeah, plenty of four of those corners in Baku already. Yeah, there's plenty of corners where people are hauling ass and need to slam. Like that's kind of the whole, whole sport. That's, 
That's literally boxing. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, it's also the sport, right? Like, there's a lot of corners that people have to break for before they turn. You know, like you, you've enlightened me on the the listing fees from the tracks. I certainly don't think the macro environment of Formula One and the rising just profit focus and margins in general are good. They're not. That's not going to help Monaco's case, right? And them continuing to get this sweetheart deal with individual sponsorships and private sponsorships and then a lower list. None of that's going to work in their favor. So they're clearly going to have to change something. I think for me now, the question is, do they, does their purpose on the calendar get fundamentally shifted or do they change the track to make it more raceable? Because the cars are never going to be able to race there. I don't care what they do to them. I really don't. They're too wide. They're going to have to literally turn F1 cars into having the footprint of an F2 car for anyone to have a chance of overtaking in any of those sectors. It'll never happen. What if they did like a, what if they did a blend of F1 drivers with like the top couple of F2 drivers racing F2 cars around Monaco instead? F1 drivers teaming up with F2 drivers? Yeah. Or, yeah. So like they're, they're really making a bigger push to like create more visibility for young drivers. F2 cars, far more equitable, you know, gives you the chance to sort of stack different drivers against one another. I like the your whole karting idea with the, the concept of like you get one race a year where you can you can sort of put to rest that debate of, well, you're just better because of the car that you have, rather than like dude, if you if you lost every race but Latifi won the the karting race at Monaco, it'd be like, well, screw you guys, like I won the karting race, so equal cars, right? Like it, it would have to be a kind of a cool like badge of honor that's unique to all the other tracks. Now that's probably feels overly hokey to, to most people. And so, yeah, look, I, I think you would, you'd potentially have to change the track and that's about all you can do. I, unfortunately, I wish the money didn't decide it, but when you're out 40 million, a 40 million a race, uh, yeah, it's not going to help, unfortunately. So Look, if we're actually putting money down on the likely outcome here, they're probably going to renegotiate and it'll be two or three more years. Like, I doubt anything substantial is going to change in the near term because of how well this race went. That's enough gunpowder for them to probably preserve more or less the stat- a version of the status quo uh, for the time being. But at some point, the dam's going to break. Yeah, they get to delay the decision a little bit longer. The other the sort of macro thing that I was I was a comment that somebody made was, you know, Monaco historically being this sort of venue that is sort of the the place that you take people to try to sell them on the business relationship with F1, potential corporate sponsors. Like that's the cool venue you you bring that company out on a yacht and like talk business. But those starting to be supplant like that was also a really big emphasis in Miami. And so trying to supplant like that right venue. To, to sort of drive really good point. corporate relationships, corporate negotiations, et cetera. Like, look, I, I think you could probably do it at any of these venues at any of these places, but it, it's just another, another element of Monaco that's being, being chipped away. Um, so at the end of the day, I think it still is, becomes the, the pinnacle driver's track, the most impressive driver cam to watch somebody take a, a, a lap on undoubtedly. But I, I don't know. That's enough to, to keep it on the list forever. I think we've done Monaco justice. We, we tried to, yeah. Would you like to spit your venom at the FAA before we move on to teams? 
Oh, yes, I would absolutely like to do that. Any opportunity I have. Um, and then I have I have one more comment about uh, our friend Will Buxton. I'd like to to note before we Jesus, move man. before we move on as on well. A freaking hit list. Are you <laughs> Dude, operating off of tonight? I've really gotten <laughs> to bring all my favorites to to play today. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a question for you. Is like in, in watching the race, I, I I couldn't help but think, wow, everybody from Mercedes to Haas, they were praying for rain. They were doing the rain dance. Um, and yet, when it came time to race and there was a downpour on track, where was the FIA? But, forgive the pun, raining on everybody's parade and get making us wait an hour and 20 minutes until the track was almost dry. And so you have to but wonder, was that intentional? Were they intentionally trying to deprive Monaco of, of the so desperately needed intrigue that would keep it on the calendar for years to come? Did they have an alternative uh, alternative intent here behind the, the the race delay? And then only to follow that with, you know, again, maybe even better serving Ferrari, right? Who, who stood to gain by delaying the race? Who stood to gain by the rolling start? One has to wonder. Seems to have helped, would have helped Ferrari. But uh, alas, even with the FIA's help, Ferrari's disastrous strategy still couldn't, uh, was still too much. Are you convinced? Do you buy it? Are you, uh, are you, uh, uh, all right, you're a blind FIA supporter, huh? You're just a sheep. I don't live in a world of absolutes or black and whites. I think that you can believe that something was poorly managed with, without believing that, you know, you know, somebody involved was the Antichrist. I don't need like a massive conspiracy, uh, to sleep at night, unlike you. Um, you know, I don't like squint when I look at the FIA logo and see like a, you know, a hammer and a sickle, you know, like I'm not like, (laughs) you're not buying into my McCarthyism here. No, like not at all. Um, so, okay. Look, ultimately when stuff like this happens, what it usually comes down to is ineffective management and or processes or people who aren't willing to make a decision on the basis that they don't want to accept risk or liability as a result of making that decision. And if anything that if, if anything's come of Michael Massey's firing and the new management by committee structure they have over race weekends, which net net is probably a good thing. Yeah. It means that they're probably going to be less decisive on these types of more proactive decisions about race start and finish and more process oriented. And somehow they have gotten into a space and I don't know what internal protocol is involved in this, where they have a threshold for driver safety in standing water situations that they're just not willing to cross anymore. And, you know, for Martin Brundle to sit on the broadcast and just bitch and moan about the days of yesteryear and why everyone that races a car now is a pussy because they won't <laughs> drive through a puddle is, to me, the equivalent of just some old geezer bitching at me at the shopping mall because I'm wearing my shorts too low. Like, I, 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 like, I don't give that any credence whatsoever. That's like, that's like saying that Roman Grosjean should have – would have been better off crashing in Ayrton Senna's 92 Williams survival cell structure because that's just the way it was and the way that we did it back then was better. It's like, 
innovations for driver safety span both car technology and also like your posture for how you decide race start and safe conditions. That stuff necessarily must evolve. And I know that they took it too far at Spa last year, but like clearly, clearly they have an opportunity to communicate their new posture on rain. But like, I don't think it was anything worth pitching a tantrum over. Um, and and if this is the type of stuff we're picking at, like we're clearly just we have an axe to grind with the FIA still for no reason that we can't explain. But like this does not rise to the level of severity that what we like what we saw at the end of last year in Bahrain, like I, I just, or in Abu Dhabi, like I just I, I, like many of the things that people bitch about with the FIA. I think this is a total nothing burger. God, I really do. You're such a corporate shell. Just a yes. <laughs> a realist i'm just a realist man they're imperfect people running an imperfect organization they're probably under resourced for the task at hand and they don't want to be the ones responsible for putting 20 cars on a track and having them run through standing water hydroplane on full wet tires that never get used and immediately have seven out of ten teams calling them because they now are going over their cost cap because the fia made them race in a, a torrential downpour that ended 10 minutes later like, that is a much less tenable position than the one that they're currently in. Uh, so, you're sympathetic to Ferrari's position on strategy. I'm sympathetic to the FIA. Like, I would not want that job. If I'm them, I bias towards the right decision. And if you have a gripe, your gripe should be that they didn't start the race 10 minutes earlier. And to me, that's totally meaningless. Well, to your point on ignorance versus conspiracy, I happen to think ignorance is the greatest conspiracy of them all. So... Uh... <laughs> Jesus Christ. How deep do you want to go here, Graham? I don't think we had enough time for all that. Um, <laughs> no, look, um, it was an interesting debate to be to be brought up. Uh, look, I think people were, were they were probably overly hostile about the whole spa thing as well. I mean, y- you literally could not sure. see anything. And certain shots on the track, you're right. There was a massive amount of standing water. And at a certain point, what, we were already 45 minutes into waiting for the race start. At which point, if it was still too wet and you had drivers go out there and red flag it in the first three laps, you'd have been sitting there for another 25, 30 minutes anyway, right? So we would have been in the same situation just with less cars on the grid. So, look, I I think you probably got to exactly where you were 10 minutes. Look, I was in the camp of let's start at 10 minutes earlier because I love a good rain race and love the challenge, but you increase the odds of the red flag. But by the time they did start, it was absolutely dry enough to do a, a standing start. So I, I do think they, they, they missed there. But I think you also bring up another good point is just the structure of the FIA overall. Anytime you're, you're managing by consensus, you're, you're managing to the mean of that group. And therefore, you're probably going to find parties who are more risk averse. And so your average risk tolerance is going to go down as well. So... Well, and if and, and, and if the FIA is going to play a role in trying to create parity in the sport through the enforcement of cost caps and all of these really expensive regulations on car design that make racing more feasible and actual overtaking and all these things that basically make it harder to operate a team week in and week out, because that's inevitably what they're doing, then they have to be on the other end of it also protecting the teams and all of the investments they're making in those cars and not putting them on the track in situations that are like, it works both ways. And so I'm sympathetic to what they're trying to do. And so to the degree your conspiracy is the FIA has an agenda. I would say 
you're abs you're absolutely fucking right. They have an agenda, and part of that agenda is they're sympathetic to the teams who are they're making it harder on to operate week to week, and don't just want carnage flying all over the track. If they didn't have caps on the number of chassis, gearboxes, and engines that they could throw into the cars, and the freaking monocoque didn't cost a million dollars to manufacture then I'm sure the FIA would have no problem with cars flying into walls, right? Like, <laughs> But that's just not the reality of the sport. So they, they have to care. So at, at just one last question on this topic. Uh, at, at what time did you receive the talking points from the FIA <laughs> spokesman? I, I just wanted to... I actually... I actually, I actually have uh, that Muhammad guy uh, off, ca- slightly off camera, whispering into my ear periodically. Got it. Yeah, he's got to get a little uh, sign for here. you. He's holding up your. Yeah. Your, all right. Good. All right. Well, hey, Muhammad. Yeah, he, good to see you. I, he actually flew. He actually flew in. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'm glad we know we have that sort of have that sort of influence. Um, all right. Last point. Then we'll... I don't think he's going to chop me. Up. I don't think he's going to chop me up with a bone saw though. If I speak off script. <laughs> uh... <I'm> sorry. <laughs> Too far. <laughs> I don't know. I try not to be the the ire of too many regimes. I have enough enemies as it is. I don't need like national governments. Sorry, <laughs> a lot of news came out in golf today. I'm not really feeling good about the Saudis at the moment. So right, don't, <laughs> don't bring your baggage into this safe space here. Um, sorry. Um, all right, last point before we we move on to teams. To, sorry to be clear, the FIA president is not in bed with the Saudis. I just want to. I, just, I don't want to accuse him of that simply because his first name is Mohammed. I, that's, I'm not that stupid and ignorant. I just need to go on. Who record. all wants to bet this doesn't make it into the actual episode or the oh, or go. the cold it'll open? Go. We'll see. We'll see. I've I've heard a lot of Graham quotes left on the cutting room floor while all my greatest hits make it into the episode. So we'll time will tell. Now that you've said that, I obviously can't take it out. Uh, all right, all right last thing. Look, th- there's a lot said about driver mindset. The, the mental aspect of the sport, you know, especially when the drivers get in the car, then they got to get out of the car, all their exercises they do to, to stay in this very delicate, finely tuned mental state. And imagine you're that driver. You've just been meditating. You're doing whatever pre-race ritual you do. You're walking to the grid, about to get in your car to race in one of the most difficult races in the season. And what do you see? Right as you're approaching your vehicle – the beaming grin of Will Bugston and all of his pre-race hype, and he just turns to you and asks just a totally inane question, like, uh, are you feeling confident today, Perez? And Perez is just, like, totally caught off guard, like, uh, what? And then he, like, repeats the question, asks him a couple more. I mean, as a driver, I can just not imagine anything worse than that right there. So question to you. Of all the press obligations that drivers have to go through, should they at least be exempt from having to talk to anybody right before the race? Like, should Will Buxton be barred from approaching a driver? I'm not aware of any contract that they're under that would force them to do media on the grid. I mean, think about how many times people ignore Martin Brendel when he's chasing them around for the grid walk. This is what over-ear headphones are made for. No, I get, I get, I get that the driver has the right, but then you walk by, you ignore. People think you're an asshole. But like, should Brundle and Buxton like leave these dudes alone? You got them on Thursday. You get them on Friday. You get them after the race. Like, you get them after qualifying. Can they at least have the 15 minutes before they get in the car 
and start a race. Like, I don't know. I just, I guess, wish there was a little bit more media decency that left these people alone for like the most probably sensitive few moments before getting in the car. Like the camera caught Lance Stroll shortly after he asked Perez those questions. And you could just see the look of pure terror in Stroll's face as though he knew he had to like answer a stupid question from Buxton. Like eh, it just seems wrong. I, okay. I think you're maybe onto something, but also I don't want the inverse extreme to be true because it is in other sports like golf where you have zero player access. Agreed. And the entertainment product is heavily diminished as a result of it. Agreed. So I'd rather be in the situation we're in, which is where we might be pushing it a little too far in certain instances. But I don't know. I'm a fan. Like, this is the shit I want to see. I mean, one of the most memorable parts of the Miami GP was the gridwalk, right? And, like, I don't know. I'm not – dude, I'm not – how are you sympathetic to a guy who's making $20 million a year and gets to drive – the fastest car in the world around a track for a living. Like, so what if somebody shoves a microphone in your face and asks you to answer a couple of questions before you strap it up and go out? Like, but the difference between the the Brundle grid walk in Miami was that he wasn't assaulting drivers. It was random people that he mistook as other random people. But there were drivers in there too. He got, he went after Alonzo and Signs and like he. So I don't know. I don't think it's that unprecedented in other sports. I mean, literally, head coaches get grabbed coming into and out of the tunnel. In NFL games. Like, and tell me it that. doesn't seem like like just sort of you're grasping, right? It's just uh, like so over-eager and like groveling yeah, for that like last moment as a, quote. As a reporter, you're a venture capitalist in that moment because you know that nine of the interactions are going to either – you're either going to be ignored or it's going to be just like plain canned responses. But one out of ten is going to be a really candid – moment that is like unscripted and unplanned and then make the other nine worth it i get but i but i guess inversely if there's a 10 percent chance that one of these drivers is on the starting grid and the last image that they have in their mind before the lights go out is freaking will buxton's face and that detracts from the quality of the race i think that is a travesty for the sport if they put that much stock in the presence <laughs> of will buxton they got bigger problems, that's fair I'm tell you that's, that right that's now. fair like they need a different they need a different pregame ritual. There's a there's a story. I'm gonna go back to golf again because I love golf. Greg Norman blew a seven stroke lead in the Masters one time. He's never won it. That he never won that tournament in his career, and he literally uh, overheard that a reporter on Saturday night before the final round was talking about despite his big lead that his game was shaky and that he thought Greg Norman might choke. And Greg Norman before his round on Sunday called the net head of the network and bitched about that reporter. And it got back to the reporter and the reporter said in response, if that's what Greg Norman is about, is worried about the morning of his final round at the masters, then I know I'm right. And he's going to choke because he's clearly focused on the wrong things. And he went out and he lost the masters. So drivers are resilient, man. Like if your head's not in the game, it's already not in the game. Will Buxton's not going to have anything to do with that. I don't know, man. Have you ever been accosted by Will Buxton? Seems pretty jarring. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> Sounds like you're ready to burn his house down. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, I already, I already covered this topic with my therapist, so I won't bore you with all of the details <laughs> here. So we can we can move on. All right, as a good as a good segue to uh, to the individual teams. I mean, admittedly, two of the teams we're going to start with Aston Martin and uh, and Williams. They had both of their oh. they had both of their star drivers um, in perfect fashion. Um, Crash not 
on lap one or lap two or lap 20, but both of them crashed on the formation lap and then proceeded to both pit to either get a new tire or get a new front wing, only to then nearly crash into each other in the pit. So that's how the race started for Williams and Aston Martin. Um, Couldn't be any more indicative of the, the disparity between... Some paid drivers, uh, as that is a very generalized term of which many drivers actually fall into that bucket, but maybe with less recognition of that fact. But uh, so I guess maybe what you label them, what, just the Canadian drivers? Has this turned into a less of a hate on paid drivers and more a hate on Canadian drivers? What are we going with now? I think it's you can call them Canadian drivers or you can call them uh pepperoni boy and son of a billionaire micromanager i don't know you can go with whatever you want um i I, look i'm hopeful that this season will be a critical blow and a step forward in the death of paid drivers in formula one because not only did both those two crash on the formation lab but also them plus joe guan yu who's the third paid driver on the grid were the three worst qualifiers by a significant margin at Monaco. So, I mean, we're just airing the dirty laundry out of pay drivers left and right. Now, I will, to Latifi's credit, although Albon had to retire, for a second week in a row, give him some props that he did, technically speaking, finish ahead of his teammate during the race, although I'm not going to overly read into that. In general, I think they should all be ashamed. I would not be disappointed if... I'm going to loop Joe into this one as well. I'm going to increase my level of hate on him, even though it's his first year. I would be perfectly fine if all three of them mailed it in and said we're not showing up for Baku, and we never had to see see, see him again. So, I mean, so does Mick fall into that camp as well? He crashed out. He's ar- he's arguably a paid driver as well. Uh, I mean, he's got that one-in-one sponsorship, right? But he also, like, come on, man, he won F2. He won F2, which is... I think that does disqualify you from reaching paid driver status. Like I think he, he rises above the average resume of the other three guys we're talking about. All right. All right. Um, well, so, so on that note, um, I, the other fact that I saw floating around as well is that uh, to his credit, um, Latifi has not finished last in a single race this season. So, I mean, like, if we're going to be objective about it, he's uh, he's hanging in there. Now, admitted, I think no. drivers have DNF'd every single race this season, so maybe a bit of a skewed statistic. But, I mean, what's your takeaway for Albon? Second week in a row now, underperforming Latifi? I mean, do you read much into that? He was receiving ah. all sorts of praise earlier for his amazing tire management, you know, the last lap pit, uh, getting points this season. Where where do you Where do you stack up Albon now? Barcelona was clear cut for me. This one seems like it could have been more reliability oriented. Um, he ended up retiring because of overheating. There's no talent. I, I didn't listen to his team radio, so I don't know how much he was managing before that happened in the race, but I'd imagine probably to some degree he was. But uh, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to read too much into it. I, I, don't, I, I think it's probably these last two weekends are more of, a, more of an outlier. We'll see in Baku. Um, now, if Latifi is still outperforming Alaban on a relative basis come Silverstone in two or three races, then I think we'll have a conversation, but I'm not overly concerned about it. Haas. 
Uh, I'll be honest. I don't know that there was really anything particularly new to be taken away here other than maybe the fact that it's been slightly overlooked in light of the pageantry of the end of the race and Red Bull's victory, but that an F1 car was ripped in half <laughs> on, on the Monaco track, which is generally a low-speed circuit. Uh, yeah. What was your, I'm curious, what was your live reaction when you saw, cause there was a shot on the broadcast where you could see the rear end of the car detached. And I kind of had like one of those holy shit moments and then it all ended up kind of not being a big deal, but like, I don't feel like that was talked about enough. The severity of that crash. I mean, I think my, my immediate reaction was I absolutely love the replay of Joe looking in his rear view mirror to like see the back of Schumacher's car coming around that corner. Um, it was just like <laughs> such an ironic, ironic view. Um, I mean, look, that's the nature of the cars. I think the, that's sort of the, in a lot of ways, like the breakaway construction, right? I think he, he hit the car quite perfectly at the right angle, rear end, to break it loose in that way. But I think it just goes to show that so much of the structural integrity is all built on the cockpit and the rest of it is carbon fiber to be largely disposed of. So I think it probably looked more dramatic than it was, right? We've seen a lot more other dramatic crashes. He kind of came in at like a 45 degree angle. So I think he got that split a little bit more, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly looked dramatic. But I think um, as to that point, though, of talking about ah, well, we'll get to we'll get to uh, we'll get to Alpha in a minute. But we did skip over Aston Martin. I just wanted to note. So I guess I guess Vettel doesn't get any Vettel doesn't get any uh, words or words or recognition at all. What do you want to say? I mean, I I don't know. He was just kind of there. Um, did he do anything notable during the race? I mean, look, I think he, I think he qualified well in the race. I think, I think more for him, it was like, he actually put up uh, a decent qualifying again in ninth place. So like as, as much as a hard time as we've given Vettel for sort of being hugely apathetic, not having his heart in it, I think he showed a, a positive look again and dramatically put a gap between him and Stroll. So, um, It'll be interesting to see how the Aston Martin car matures over the second half of the season after their pivot in the overall design. You can't really tell anything from Monaco. Even Baku might be a little tough to get a lot of a lot of insight from, but who knows? Vettel seemed Vettel seemed comfortable. Um, and I was just going to move on to to Magnussen again because I think unfortunate for him, um, DNF in the race and Haas overall, like just very very negative. Um, race to, and and both qualified at the bottom so definitely a, a weekend to forget for for both of them i i literally don't have anything to say about aston haas or really even alpha Tauri, to be honest with you other than the ghastly ricardo overtake which i thought was hilarious uh but nothing really stuck out for me alpine on the other hand was much spicier with the aforementioned ass backing up of, of Alonzo in the race. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Any any thoughts on, maybe we'll just cover in summary Aston Haas and AlphaTauri collectively. Yeah, I mean, I think we're good on Aston and Haas. I think AlphaTauri, again, just really seemed to to struggle. I thought Sonoda, he qualified well up in 11th. Gasly had some issues in qualifying down in 17th. Made up some places on, and basically him and Sonoda switched places in the race with Gasly, 
pitting early onto Inters, able to make up some spots while Sonoda missed at least one corner and lost some spots there. So um, not Sonoda's best race of the day. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, now they're only two points ahead of Haas in the driver's championship and, and basically lost ground to all of their rivals. So um, especially for Gasly, I mean, again, we've talked about this before, but that team losing pace to where they were last year, Gasly, uh, pretty significant fall from grace and probably the biggest loser of uh, Perez's new contract out to what, 2024. Um, so I think whatever, whatever hope he had of, rejoining red bull in the near future um has since been dashed so interesting to see what where he goes next um but yeah let's talk about alpine because i will pat myself uh, on the bat on the back a bit here um as terrible as nearly every one of our other predictions is i'm feeling quite vindicated with my belief that uh alpine might be the best midfield team would you like to affirm my my prediction it's certainly turning that way. The fact that they're going to have to take a grid penalty every race in the second half of the year because they're going to be throwing engines over their quota <laughs> into that car is probably not going to help them. But in general, I agree with you, putting that aside. Um, I guess I have two questions. In, I, I, so, yes, I agree with the general Alpine performance. Two questions about this race specifically. One, is Alonso ashamed of what he did? And two... Is the penalty on Ocon fair for his collision with Hamilton? Uh, so take the first one. Is what what would Alonso have to be ashamed about? I don't know. Creating a train of literally twelve cars that then almost got overtaken, had to get over, blue flagged by the leaders like consecutively, and then just deciding to pound in the fastest lap because he wanted to flip the switch on. So what explains him backing up the pack so much? Like why? What was the? What would have been the rationale for that? Other tire rationing. Yeah. He, he was rationing his tires, but the rationale for that doesn't really see like, because basically the notion is that Alpine had him in seventh. They wanted him to basically stay in seventh and they didn't want his tires to give out at the end. So they were like, drive slow. No one can get around you to preserve your tires so that you can make it to the end of the race. But I'm thinking to myself, who cares if you lose your tires at the end of the race? No one's going to be able to get around you at the end of the race. So why does it matter that you preserve now? It's like, I, I didn't really understand the rationale, but he literally backed up the entire grid. Well, and then didn't, once once the penalty on Ocon got announced, didn't they like tell him to push to try to open up a gap um, for... While Alonzo was backing up? Yeah, well, they tried to push, no, but then they told Alonzo to like go to help be able to like alleviate oh. the pressure a little bit to then help Ocon. Weird. So yeah, it was a weird strategy. I mean, I don't know why that was so necessary other than like would you then simultaneously put pressure on hamilton to then defend against Ocon? like that is the really the only thing i could have expected but it's like yeah nobody's passing anybody so this is just all feels absurd poor lewis hamilton man he just keeps getting freaking screwed (laughs) well and i think if i think if so do do i think alonzo feels ashamed no I, i some i i think if he can find any opportunity to frustrate Hamilton at any point in time. Uh, He probably revels in it. So I I think he enjoyed the afternoon quite thoroughly. So I'd I'd like to, given the time constraints we're under, I'd like to propose we skip Alfa Romeo. I think we need to touch on McLaren. We've already ventured into Mercedes. So let's do Mercedes and then McLaren in reverse order since we're already there. And we'll skip Ferrari Red Bull because we already covered this pretty thoroughly. Deal. So 
Any other thoughts on Mercedes? Uh, I mean, other than R- Russell just continuing to crush it at every turn and and be more or less flawless. Um, yeah, I mean, that was super impressive again. So um, it's interesting on, on Mercedes because unlike what you hear with, uh, as we'll get to with McLaren and, and the fact that like it seems like Ricardo and Norris are running the same setup and Ricardo cannot articulate the reasons for his lack of pace. I think what you see with Mercedes is they are actively researching and testing different things. And so you have Russell and Hamilton on different programs and yet their margins are still super close when it comes to, to race pace. I mean, they're a couple of tenths off in, in real pace. And so again, great driver lineup, both performing well, still a little, little unlucky. Um, by Hamilton. I mean, it's amazing. We, we said this for multiple years. It's a hugely different world when you're starting on pole position every race versus when you're starting fourth, fifth, sixth in a race. Um, just a lot more variables. Luck is not as kind to you. And and Hamilton is is feeling that firsthand. So, uh, but typically those those streaks only last for a little bit. Uh, and the hopefully the clouds will clear just as the, the team is hitting their stride. So still very optimistic on them. Yeah, I am too. I have nothing to add. All right. Turn to your to your favorite team, McLaren. You wanna you wanna lead us through this one? I mean, just to kick us off, ultimately they lost ground to to, to Mercedes, but uh, picked up ground on basically everyone else. Uh, Russell, I'm sorry, Norris only lost one point to Russell. He gained points on Hamilton in the in the drivers' championship. He's only two points behind Hamilton for fifth place. He's basically single handedly keeping McLaren as a fourth place constructors. Um, but yeah, what's your, what's your observations on McLaren for the weekend? There's no other t- constructor with more than 20 points in the constructors collectively who has such a slanted contribution of one driver versus the other to their constructors total. Lando is over 80% of their constructors total. Danny Rick has literally done nothing. I continue to believe that there's just no way they can justify the cost of his contract in absence of him being able to even contribute 20% of their constructors points. And there just seems to be very little explanation. Um, Rumor has it that Andreas Seidel is really keen on Ricardo and likes him and wants him to work out. But if this persists past the summer break, I just don't think it's explainable anymore from their, their team standpoint. And I think they're going to have to move on. So it's sad. I, I think that Danny Rick may have found himself in a really unfortunate scenario where the car just doesn't suit him. And it might lead to the demise of his career sooner than it should have. If he had just not jumped between teams as rapidly as he did, but those were his decisions. And I just hasn't worked out for him. You hate it. Cause he's a likable guy, but it's just, yeah, I saw an interesting graphic that assessed like driver's average finishing finishing position, and he's down there with the likes of of Latifi and Stroll and Schumacher. Yep. So, I mean, when you when you put it in that context, it it's a really tough look. I mean, you could say the jumping of the teams was one thing. I don't even know if that's true. I mean, he he's been in a fourth and a fifth best car for the last what four seasons in Red Bull before that. So, I mean. He's been in good cars. He hasn't had a, a huge excuse in that regard. But I do think that this style of I think he has a similar driving style to Max. And while 
Max has been able to, albeit not perfectly still, he's been better able to adjust his style to the nature of the car, whereas others like Perez, it's just a better natural fit. I think it's not a natural fit for Danny Rick's hard-breaking, like, aggressive turning style, and he just has not been able to to make the stylistic adjustment, and 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 he's struggling. So, I mean, if you can't if you can't adapt, um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and it sounds unfortunately like he's really leaning into both the 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 feel of the car as well as like the engineering and aerodynamics, like spending a lot of time with engineers. But yeah, I mean, it just I would not have thought your prediction of Ricardo at IndyCar at you know what seven races into the season would have been so dead on. But I mean, every week it seems like you're more and more right. And the sad thing is for the American audience is like you talk to any American, it's like him and Lewis are the ones that always come up as like people's favorite drivers. So looks like, uh, looks like he could be, he could be pulling a David Beckham and heading over to a uh, state side. So man, I'm always impressed by, by your vision on that one. We'll see. Don't crown me yet. All right. Personal podium. You first. I mean, the the obvious answer is is Perez, Perez, and Perez. So out qualify Max, jump to inners, take the win, uh, and and lock in a nice close third place in the drivers championship. I mean, it's you, you can't ask for anything more. But beyond that, we touched on it. Norris, he's outscoring other teams single handedly, keeping the team up there whilst being you know, supposedly sick with tonsillitis for the last two weekends. So, um, I mean, yeah, man, he's, he's continuing to deliver as well. How about you? I'd like to throw a shout out to the little heralded Monica race stewards. All right. All right. Uh, for clearing a torn apart car from a track with a very well strategically positioned crane without actually needing a red flag. The only reason they needed the red flag was because they had to repair the tech pro which isn't up to them, but they literally had a crane floating above, like ready to roll right above our mixed car crash. And they cleared a car that was torn in half without having to take cars off the track. Like good on you boys. Like they've, they're obviously the OGs of stewards. And if they do away with the Monaco race, which they should, I hope they take those guys and girls if they're out there and get them over to another track so they can continue stewarding. Cause they clearly are good at their jobs. So I want to throw this. One I thought they were going to just carry the whole car off. I didn't even know if they were going to use a crane. I mean, they wait, they wheeled the the one portion of the they car just straight away. I was like, I guess the I guess the emergency brakes not on. <laughs> They're gonna... I'm sure they threw out the issue. Should we just break the rest of this shit up and carry it off, or what? So, all right, God. well done, well deserved. Here, here. All right, uh, Perez. Of course, I can't not put him on there. Um, and then despite my earlier contrarian question about did signs actually hurt the team, I, I want to echo your similar sentiments of think about where he's come from the last two or three weekends. He kept on the track. He got back on the podium. Uh, and he made a good judgment call for his own race and was confident and stuck by it. And so in terms of a critical step towards confidence building, this weekend was super, super important for him. So good on him. Yep. We'll see if it pays dividends in Baku. All right. I know you've been waiting for this one. DNF of the week. What do you got? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you've already you've already said it, but it's Ricardo for me. I just I think he is who he thought he was. Uh, 
he's supposed to be the king of Monaco. He won it once with Red Bull, you know, relative to the other places he could be king, I guess. Um, and then he should have won it the year before that. He's traditionally very strong on this track, and he's just nowhere to be found. He's just Mr. Relevant. I just I don't feel good about him making any progress. Lando solidified his seat as number one driver. They're going to clearly develop the car around him. I think Danny Rick has very little hope, regardless of how hard he leans in with the engineers. I really do. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to probably go to my first IndyCar race next year, and I'll probably be wearing Danny Rick's shirt. I'm excited about it. And he'll be very popular in hell. He may make more money in IndyCar than he does in Formula 1. I have no idea. I think his future is very bright. It's just not in Formula 1. I don't know. The guy makes a shitload of money in Formula 1. <laughs> he does. Yeah, he does. Uh, but, hey, you? I, I wouldn't doubt it either. Um, I mean, no shocker here. I think paid drivers all the way around. From Stroll, Latifi, Schumacher, Joe. Um, just wasn't a great weekend for them. I think uh, some of them are more likely to stick around than others. But you add Ricardo to that. And a um, lot of seats opening up for a, a huge pool of young talent. Uh, just waiting to get in a seat. It sounds like we might get Piastri in, in that McLaren sooner than we thought. Um, hopefully it. we get DeVries in the Williams before we thought. Um, we'll see where Colton Herta comes up because, I mean, God knows he deserves it, right? Um, and <laughs> nobody in 10th place ever deserved a, <laughs> a seat in F1 so much. Um, all right. Should we do a little look ahead? Baku coming up? Yeah, give, give, give me the abbreviated synopsis for uh, our preview for, for Baku. Maybe we don't need to cover it in Aussie. We get, we're, we're, we're sitting on an hour and 36 minutes of recording time, and I think that the VHS runs out at uh, an hour 45. So. All right, we'll, uh, we'll hurry. But I hear, I, I hear the long form is all the rage, so, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. All right, give me, well, give me what you got on Baku. You got some good notes yeah, in here. Yeah, it's uh, third longest track on the schedule behind Spa and Jetta, so 3.7 miles. Um for you in uh, the UK that use kilometers, I don't know, and I don't give a shit. Um, but it's got a <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a 0.6 mile straight. Uh, Herman Tilk design counterclockwise. Basically, the way you can remember it is it's a giant rectangle next to a giant pentagon connected by a really long straight. Um, <laughs> that's what I got. A lot of lot of 90 degrees and a lot of what? I don't know. 360 <laughs> divided by five, whatever that is. Uh, degree corners. Um, so should have two DRS zones. One's on that main long straight. The other one's in the sort of rectangle portion. So sectors one and three it should create kind of a nice like complex of like uh, DRS zone, a couple of corners, and then another DRS zone. Um and look, it's had some it's had some interesting races over the last um, couple of years. I mean, it, the first race was in 2016, but the first Azerbaijan Grand Prix was actually in 2017, which was um, actually won by Ricardo with Red Bull. Um, so maybe maybe this is his his time to for resurgence. Um, but that race was all sorts of mixed up of collisions and retirements and changes in the order. Um, to ultimately leave it with Ricardo Stroll and Magnussen, uh, I believe as the, as the podium. So quite a weird outcome. 2018, uh, that was the sort of famous Ricardo Verstappen team member, Red Bull collision. Um, and that was, you had Botas in the lead there before having a mechanical retirement and handing the lead to Hamilton followed by Raikkonen with Perez on the, on the podium. Um, let's see, 2019, 
um, relatively clean race. I mean, a lot of passing, some, some passing on the track and mainly through the pits, but it was a, a relatively uneventful, um, dominated by Mercedes, um, then Vettel and Verstappen and then canceled due to COVID in 2020, but 2021, um, a bit of a, a weird race. That's where Stroll and Verstappen both had those tire failures. Verstappen was in first, um, had the blowout. And ultimately, I think what um, Perez ended up uh, winning that one. That's where they had the restart after Max's red flag. Perez was in first, followed by Hamilton, and Hamilton sort of went r- long on that on the race start because of his uh, brake magic setting, and um, and Perez took home a win there. So, um, in terms of interesting predictions. Look, I think, not surprisingly, you're going to see Ferrari and Red Bull back up front. I think you're probably going to get a lot of Ferrari degradation. I think you're probably going to see some mechanical DNFs. But if I have to pick a, somebody as a winner, I think I got to go Perez for the back-to-back. I'm, I'm riding this high. All in on Perez. Oh, wow. Yep. How about you? Ah, it's, the, it's the obvious pick. All right. For first, let me just, I appreciate all that insight on Baku. It actually, and I don't know if I've ever told you this before, it's my favorite track. To watch or to drive in the game? To watch. To watch. Okay. To watch. It's my favorite track to watch because it seems to always lead to carnage and overtaking is very possible. And it's a street circle with a lot of character. And they race by Castle, which is great. So I think this could be a very fun weekend. Um, I think in terms of predictions, look, if – if what was true in the speed trap for Mercedes in Barcelona was real, I think they could actually be very strong in Baku. So my prediction is I think Mercedes puts both drivers in the top five for the first time this year. It will be aided by some degree of carnage up front. And I don't know who that's going to be involved in. I agree with the bias that Perez should perform well in Baku because he seems to, it seems to suit his eye, but there's carnage always here. So you never know what's going to happen. Uh, I think Mercedes is going to find a way into getting both guys in the top five. All right. I mean, you predicted something similar last week that Mercedes, that was going to be a breakout track, despite the fact that Mercedes admitted they were going to do terrible there. So uh, is this going to become a thing now? Like, I feel like your brother's getting in your ear a little bit, or, or you're trying to avoid the <laughs> you're trying to avoid the heat from the the Mercedes fanboys. You, you seem a little high on high on Mercedes lately. I think. I think they're coming at some point, and it's just a question of when. And I think selfishly what it is is that I really just want it for the sport. I just really want a three-horse race. And somehow, in my newly found appreciation and disdain for the Tifosi and Ferrari and my appreciation for George Russell, my hatred of Ferrari has more than offset my previous hatred for Mercedes. And so I'm a, I'm a bit more sympathetic. To it him. almost serves as like a it serves as like a Mercedes amplifying effect. As much as you hate Ferrari, it's sort of being fed into a, a newfound appreciation. You value everything on a relative basis, and Ferrari is my new Death Star. And I'm pretty keen on George Russell. Uh, so yeah, yeah, maybe I do want him to surge a little bit. All right, all right. I wouldn't hate well, it. Look, I think you're and and okay. Can I wake one last Please. point? Please. The Toto Christian Horner dynamic is way more entertaining than Christian Horner versus this wet blanket that is Bonato, who would barely even be willing to speak English on a broadcast. I'm like 
that that one's doing nothing for me. Yeah, it is kind of a it's fallen by the by the wayside this year is like the team principal banter. I mean, there's been there's been nothing this year. Too early in the season, maybe that could be part of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It was pretty early in the season. I felt last year where things started to like get a little testy between. So yeah, you're you're just you're just waiting for the Toto Horner rivalry to to come back. That's what you're really looking for. Yeah, or like I don't know. Yeah, but but Otto just doesn't he he doesn't do it for yeah. me. Um, I just don't think he's very dynamic. He doesn't add anything to this point. Yeah, look, I think Ferrari or Mercedes is definitely coming back. Is it this race? And look, I wish. Unfortunately, I, I think it's going to be later season that Mercedes starts. Silverstone. Silverstone, back half, I, I think will suit them well. But look, I, I think it could also be they're having to recover still, and this could set up for an amazing year next year if you start to get a lot of this parity between these front three front, front three teams. So um, tune in to Baku. Expect the unexpected, uh, and uh, it should be a good one. Anything else you want to you want to offer in closing? I'm I'm about to fall asleep in my chair right now. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I think I think the listeners probably have already. So um, <laughs> you have free reign, my friend. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. See you next time.